Hello folks, welcome to the Newsprint Commando. I am your host, Ed Moore, and this is a spoiler podcast. I'm looking at Capital Comics Nexus Volume 1, Issue 3, dated October 1982. If you've heard the previous two episodes, congratulations. You've made it to my thoughts on Issue 3, the final issue of this first volume of Nexus. And I have a few. Um, not radically different from any comments that uh, any thoughts I've had from the previous two, but we'll we'll see. Now on Facebook, if you want to communicate with me, Teal Productions has a web page, uh, has a Facebook page there. Excuse me, that you can leave comments on. On Twitter, I'm there as Teal Productions. Now Teal is T E A L, both places. The email address is imindyman at gmail dot com. Indie is I-N-D-I-E, and the website where the episodes are posted is comicbooknoise.com slash T-N-C. That's Tango November Charlie. Thank you, Mr. Derek Coward, for allowing me the time and space to post these episodes there. If any of you guys are not familiar with Comic Book Noise, you should go. There are a variety of podcasts there. Back up a space even into the Deliberate Noise Network, of which Comic Book Noise is a member. Even more podcasts there. Give them a look. I'm sure you'll find something that you dig. Now, the creatives on this issue three are primarily the same. Mike Barron is the creator-writer. Steve Rood is the artist-letterer-colorer for the cover. Now, Steve Rood did the art and the colors on the cover. Inside, it's still black and white. Black and white magazine size. Now, on the back, though, we have a back cover, arted, drawn, inked, penned, whatever, colored by Mr. Frank Bruner. So... That is way cool at this time. Somebody asks on the letter page, or not on the letter page, maybe on that info page that comes with the Indicia, uh, why his cover, Mr. Brenner's, was not on the front. And they said it's because they felt everyone had been really encouraged to buy the book by seeing Steve Rude art on the front. Um, I beg to differ. At this point, I don't think anybody would have shied away seeing Frank Bruner's art on the cover. I think it may have only helped, but either way, that is, uh, it's in the past. It is what it is. So we open up, get the book here, and see uh, just some this's and that's about on the, on the front cover. Main couple things. Um, three things, actually, I see come to mind. Nexus is going to be going to bi-monthly. They had been quarterly. And it's going to be a color 32-page comic. So it is going color, smaller, 32 pages, comic book size, and more frequent from what it had been. And I suppose this is starting here very soon. I, I didn't look. I don't look ahead. So I'm not sure when the first color issue was put out as opposed to the October 82 of this. The Nexus portfolio is advertised here. It's six prints by Mr. Rude, uh, all together in one package. $15 their time. Um, I just located one on eBay here before I got on to record. It was 40 bucks and $10 shipping and handling. So that's 50 bucks for what was 15 bucks then. And another announcement, um, they're introducing a new book, a highly unusual series concept featuring a contemporary psychotic superhero and a 5th century druid wizard. Jeffrey Butler is the fellow doing the pencils, inks, and lettering on this decidedly different comic. Check out the letter call for a sneak preview. Our working title for the book is The Badger. And yes, uh, it is It is one of the books that I'll be looking at. Uh, Nexus, The Badger, and Whisper are the three books that Capital put out. And... We still have, I think, three more. Yeah, we have three more color 
nexuses to talk about before the first issue of Badger comes up, because I'm trying to talk about the uh, in publishing order. And then the third and final thing, uh, there's a mention here of a fan, or a, well, not a fan, but a um, comic, a very early comic news information magazine that I don't see mentioned all that often. It's coming out from New Media, and uh, Maggie Thompson is involved. It's called LOC, the letters LOC. Now, it does have kind of an extended name here that it goes by. Let me grab that. And that is On Comics Opinion and Comics Review. Seven issues came out before I believe it changed his its name. I don't remember what to, but I have run across this. Every now and then, I'll, I'll fall down rabbit holes just like anybody else doing research. But usually mine is a little bit more behind the scenes rather than character oriented. And lately, a lot of my rabbit holes have been along the lines of early fanzines and early informational magazines like um, Comic Buyer's Guide and um, things things of that nature. So oh, looks like the wife just came in and grabbed some tricky treater candy. So we must be being hit up here the 30th. Yeah, tonight's our night. So those are the things. LOC Magazine, uh, The Badger, and Nexus Portfolio, and Color. Uh, actually, that's four. So, all right. Um, bear with me here. I will catch us up textually. Nexus began to tell Sundra the story of his life. His father was General Theodore Helpop, the hero of the Veratic Uprising. One day, a woman, Danita Marlis Esper. Esperanza, came to plead with Helpop for the life of her brother, a priest of the Elvonic Order. The general had the priest released and began to court Danita Marla. They fell in love and were married by Brother Laith, L-A-T-H-E. Marlis became pregnant, but when Helpop and Marlis sought Brother Laith's blessing, the priest declared the child was cursed, his life would be a nightmare, and he would beg for relief. Furious, Helpop ordered Laith's arrest. Too late. The priest had gone underground to lead the resistance. It soon became apparent that the Vratic underground was strong enough to topple the Soviet government. General Helpop's orders had been explicit. He was to defeat the insurrection at all costs. There could be no misinterpretation. In order to save Vratic, he had to destroy it. Three and a half million died. Fleeing with his pregnant wife, Helpop made a record of his deed and programmed the ship to seek the nearest black hole to whisk him to whatever oblivion he had earned. The general's ship entered a black hole, but instead of appearing at random in the middle of nowhere, it reappeared near a tiny moon. A robot tug immediately pulled the ship into a docking facility beneath the moon's lifeless surface. In awe, the terror, excuse me, in all and terror, Helpop led his pregnant wife down the corridor, becoming the first humans to behold the complex and mysterious world of Ilum. Now, a couple quick things here. I didn't necessarily get or realize that Helpop was leader of a Soviet government or the Soviet government on another planet. Uh, I know it's 500 years from the present, which was 1981, but the, the concept of Earth having gone out, that wasn't necessarily even discussed, just that there were humans. And so I, I missed that if I was supposed to have gotten that. I don't know. But the Vratic underground toppling the Soviet government. Now, there is an indication that his dad uh, favors that style of government in this story, but it, I don't know, I guess that's just me being dense. And then the other thing, they did go into the black hole, but it was them that popped out and was taken by Tug to the planet. I didn't get the connection that was them. I, I was trying to read more into it than that. Um, but again, I guess that was just me being kind of dense. So there you go. That's me for the rest of the time that you listen to this podcast. Remember, I'm dense, so things, you know. So now we open the actual story with um, Horatio sitting here talking to Sundra. 
Uh, he is just, or no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is the opening of uh, Marlis and uh, Horatio's dad, the, the general here. They've been walking around. Um, they're looking. He tells her it's a paradise. We're saved as they're looking around. And she soon goes into labor. Uh, dad finds an auto dock and helps her deliver. And the auto dock indicates that the son would benefit by being put in this hourglass shaped tank that we saw, uh, we've seen on and off since the very beginning. So apparently Horatio has more or less lived in there since birth, uh, kind of an artificial womb. Um, we see that he is reading 20th century files from Earth, and his mother is reading to him Sneetches by Dr. Seuss, which automatically uh, puts me in mind of uh, Jay and Silent Bob, Sneetches. They're a happy family, pictures here. You know, you're going on through reading this, and, and here on this in this one panel are a couple creatures. He says they were his playmates, Alf, A-L-P-H, and Beta. I told my mom and dad about them, but they didn't believe me. So the parents have never seen them. We see them. Are they there or imaginary? I don't know. Um, yeah, what the imaginary child or a child's imaginary friends, I guess. When I was five, Marlis wandered into one of the endless corridors. We searched for her week after week. She never came back. Now we had only each other. Even Alf and Beta had disappeared. Three months later, my father found Marlis in a faraway section on one of the lower levels. She had gotten lost and starved to death. So that's what happened to his mom. Um, after they had found the body, Alf and Beta came back and they're consoling him and, and being his companion. His dad apparently doesn't recover quite as well and starts spending more and more time by himself just staring off into space. No pun intended. Literally space through one of the portals here in this uh, Eden planet that they have. I, Ilum. Ilum. That sounded like I said island. Ilum. Um, when he was nine, Horatio says he had his first attack that precipitated being put back in, in his own personal Bacta tank here, which Dad does. Pulls him out, he does fine. He learns and he grows. We, you know, we, we just have several panels of time just going on here. He's playing some ping pong with uh, Alf or Beta, with Alf. Um, at one point, one of the friends, Alf, I guess still, took him to his dad's personal library, which was a place that Horatio was not supposed to go. And Alf showed him a book in particular, which Horatio was not supposed to mess with. And it was his dad's diary. Diary starts, and we saw this at the beginning of, or at the, uh, in the first issue at the end of the tale, as the as the uh, the ship is launching, or right before the ship launches, before he destroys the planet, he's he's reciting this, and we see that it's because he entered it in a journal. This is General Theodore Hellpop. I leave this record not as an admission of guilt, but so that subsequent civilizations won't accuse me of trying to obfuscate my role. In order to save Vradic, I had to destroy it. My actions may seem abhorrent to many sentients, but I believed I had no choice. I believed I acted correctly. And most, if not all, of that was laid out for us back then. I, I don't believe I read that. Sorry. Could this broken down old man have done such a thing? Help uh, Horatio is thinking. Three and a half million at the hands of his dad. Well, he throws himself even more into reading, uh, which, I mean, we see now from the current population that they have found ways to do most living just not in the open air. Uh, we find here that there are lakes that they can go to. And, and in this issue later on, after he's telling the story, Horatio and Sundra go to some lake with some ruins and plants. And I mean, a very idyllic kind of place inside this moon still. But I guess they haven't discovered all that yet because he really turns into books. And he says he's reading Melville, Proust, 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 Heinlein, 
Twain um, said a steamboat was as fantastic to me as a spacecraft. Kind of disappointed that there's no Tolkien there. That would that would be kind of cool. But 1981, I mean, you know. Uh, and music, everything from Gregorian chants, which we know, to plazz, P-L-A-Z-Z-Z-Z, which we show this individual, and it's a much more futuristic kind of uh, drawing here. So apparently, when it comes to music, you can go into the future and do alien stuff. But when it comes to reading, you have to stay with 20th century Earth. I, that would struck me as kind of odd. Since I drifted away from Alpha and Beta, I didn't trust them. For months, I read nothing but Gogol, Tolstoy, and Dostoevsky, that is a messed up trio for a young man to spend a lot of time reading. Let me tell you. Uh, personally, as an adult, I have spent some small amount of time reading all three of those, as well as some other of the uh, late, what would that be? That'd be 19th, late 19th and early 20th century European thinkers. Uh, because all through school, of course, we're exposed, well, so to speak, to American or English speaking thinkers. A lot of the foreign-speaking thinkers we don't have uh, too much exposure to unless you try or you go through higher education. And, and again, you try. You take classes about those creators and whatnot. So, yeah, that's for a nine, if he is still nine or ten years old, to be spending a lot of time reading those guys. Uh, yeah. So one day he's reading, it looks like Crime and Punishment, and his son passes, or his dad passes by, taps him on the shoulder, and says, "Communism is glorious, my son. Glorious. Oh, wow. Okay. So he is full on Soviet communist, even still. Uh, his dad is. So, which is interesting, given given the way that Nexus is now, uh, which starts here. That night, I had my first dream about Vradic, V R A D I C. So I guess Vradic is a, a god or is a, a high level entity. I saw a priest of the Alvanic order. His name was Brother Lathe, L A T H E. That is his mom's brother. Our fates were intertwined. And we see images here of, of Brother Lathe yelling out, This child is cursed, cursed, cursed. And that final one, we get a close up of his face, and it looks like he has fangs like a vampire or a demon of some sort. Well, this precipitates some sort of physical attack on the boy. He just calls it an attack. He drags himself uh, to the Bacta tank and immerses himself in it. In the morning, I felt unusually vigorous, almost electric, better than I had in months. He's working out here. Alpha and Beta appear, asking him, hey, have you given any more thought to the that book of your dad's that we showed you? <laughs> it proved to be a, a bad question because uh, Horatio's like, yeah, you know, I, I have thought about it. Um... I don't believe you. I don't trust you. I think you left my mother. You could have saved her. You're cruel and heartless. False friends. It makes me angry. So angry I could. And he, he clutches and you can just see the, the rage in him. And then he turns and he points his hand at him rather spatula-like. And in a E kind of thing, almost like they're screaming, they're surrounded by a nimbus of energy and they disappear. They're incinerated, disintegrated, whatever. Horatio is looking. He did this with one hand, but he's looking and we see energy nimbuses or smoke trailing off of both hands. Right after this, I guess, having heard some sort of commotion, his dad pokes his head into the workout room here where they're at and says, hello, son, how are you? Which is typically all that he says whenever he interacts with his son since his mother died the man's wife. Hello, son. How are you? That That's all just about we ever see, except for communism is glorious. So, uh, fine, Dad. Just fine, Horatio says as he walks past. Uh, and don't forget, this is the issue that has uh, the Flexi track in it, this being the first Flexi comic. It was 33 and a third RPMs. Uh, 
Evitone Sound Sheets out of Clearwater, Florida was the manufacturer of the record or record-like thing, whichever. And I said I was going to try to locate that, and I forgot. Um, I'll, I'll do that after I get done recording, see if I can locate that in a digital format. And if I can, just for, you know, whatever's in giggles, I'll play it and read and see how, yeah. So uh, he continued having dreams, only now the dreams have turned to his dad, down with the communist despot, off-worlders, off-vratic, death to hell pop. And then we have 45 minutes to evacuate the planet, and it's his dad's hand pointing at the destruct button. Um, more and more, worse and worse dreams, until finally he has another attack, um, manages to drag himself to his back to tank. And then one night, uh, the or after that attack, he even dreams in the back to tank. So that's the first time that they have gotten that intent. I guess uh, alluding to, or not alluding to, but be, because of the fact that he hasn't done what the dream indicates. So he is now having them almost waking while he's in this back to tank. So he gets out of the tank this time, goes down. Uh, his dad is sitting here looking at a pistol. So his dad is contemplating suicide because of how he feels. Hello, Horatio. How are you today? Fine, dad. I love you, dad, as he lights up his hands and then he just pops him in the back. Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, he says as he's leaning against the doorway here. So, um, a quick recap. Uh, his dad is communist. The young man has been brought up in a communist environment. He spent his formative years reading in-depth fascist, socialist, communist literature. He kills his own father. He worships in a Christian-like manner of a deity of some other higher order that from what I gather, feeds him missions to kill people who deserve to be killed. And this is a superhero comic book. Boy, that is a tough definition for superheroics to me. And I'm not saying that I disagree with any of that. I, I'm just trying to lay it out, um, you know, what, what I have put together. And, you know, you can think what you want to think. I'm certainly not indicating otherwise. Um, I think it's kind of a stretch to think of him as a superhero. Perhaps over the next 80-plus-ish, um, things change a little bit for him. But I would have to think that he is more anti-heroic than a hero because um, let's compare him to the Punisher, okay? A lot of people think the Punisher is not a good guy. He is an anti-hero. Well, there are few, I think, if any, people that you can point to in the entire publishing history of the Punisher that did not deserve to die the way that they're portrayed. So uh, the Punisher is doing the human race a service, you could say. Um, I don't necessarily think that makes him a superhero, which, you know, he's considered. Uh, but I think it does perhaps make what he does heroic because of the chances he takes and, and the, the amount of negative that he has immersed himself in and he absorbs on a daily basis and not turning. Uh, now, there was the one time he turned into an angel. Um, there was the one time he was like a Frankenstein monster. Uh, I'm not counting either one of those. And for those of you that are Marvel fans, you may know. Punisher fans, you do know. If you're not a Marvel fan, you may not know either of those references. So if you're interested, check it out. Two years passed before the attacks again drove me to the tank. So uh, it's been two years since the last time he was told by Vradic or Vradic-like entity or whomever is doing this to kill someone. Uh, this time he is told to kill the manager on a planet called Thune. And of course, that is the story that Dave told in the very first issue. The manager of Thune. That's where Dave comes. When I climbed out of the tank, the costume was waiting. I put it on. I knew what I had to do. This is the first time I've told anyone as we return 
to the present now, Horatio having told Sundra his origin story. So that's not bad to get the official origin story in the third issue of a book. Uh, Most times the creators are just chomping at the bit to show you how creative they are and they tell you the origin in the first issue. And it's it's just, it's not necessarily necessary. Um, Look at a character like, say, Wolverine. He was uber popular and you did not know his origin, his early history, and that's what made him so popular. I think one of the worst things they ever did is allowed that to be told. Now, the the defense is, but, you know, there's so much about the character we haven't told. It, it doesn't matter. That mystery is what keeps people coming back. Um, ask my buddy Chris Sheehan about the television show Moonlighting and how it changed when the main character, uh, the, the two main protagonists, after years of TV sexual tension, finally fell in bed. What happened to the ratings, the show, everything. Yeah, so that is the kind of thing. The mystery is what keeps people going. You take away the mystery, and I don't know, maybe that applies to like life and marriages and all that real-world stuff. I don't know. Whatever. So we cut back to Horatio, and sorry about the wandering there. It's getting late, and I'm getting kind of tired, so my mind is a little bit freer than normal. Horatio and Sundra here, wandering in their idyllic uh, room on Ilum here. Nice stream, waterfall, verdant plants uh, everywhere. Kind of a lack of animals, I have noticed. Everything is nice, and there's lots of pretty plants, and I suppose if this were in color, they'd be very colorful and, and vibrant. No animals. No animals to hunt for food. No just generic animals. No insects to pollinate the flowers. Nothing animal other than the upright bipedal animal and plants. Now, there may be some algae and fungi and things like that. So you can argue with someone else uh, whether or not those are animals. I don't really care how they're classified. I have a degree in biology from college. I studied animals that, you know, the anything, if, if it was not called an animal, I was not interested in it. So if they were animals, they would be called animals, right? They wouldn't be called fungi or bacteria or or, you know, so whatever. So they're thinking here uh, what to do next. She's trying to console Horatio, and he, wow, in just a classic line, um, you blame your father for your mother's death and yourself for your father's, and every night you return to that big surrogate womb as uh, Sundra is just peeling the onion here, right? And Horatio says, stop. Don't cheapen my grief with your bourgeois sloganeering. Bourgeois being a word I suspect from his communist readings and upbringing. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't think you run into the bourgeois, uh, that word very often, except it was in a Madonna song back in the 80s, early early to mid 80s. Uh, that typically is the only place I ever hear the word bourgeois. She says bourgeoisie. Uh, normally that word isn't thrown around very often, even today. So, um, Okay, okay, I had no right to say that. But surely there's more to Horatio help pop than just going out and zapping the bad guy. Well, I have my work. Let me show you. And they go down, 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 down. Several panels of going down to an archaeological dig. He says, my digs. I've been excavating for five years. These artifacts, a great civilization ruled here. Someday, I hope to unravel their secrets. And here she finally is taking the opportunity. She takes one of the artifacts from him and sets it down. She says, you are a secret. I am a secret. Let us share our secret. She asks uh, afterwards, maybe, or uh, pre-coital. I don't know when this occurs. Is there anything I can do, says. It's just that it's my first time. Oh, I guess he must have suffered from that thing that all men suffer from, right, according to the commercials. 
She says, you cannot fail with me, Horatio. You can only get better. Now, that's not a bad line to be reassuring. You know, I got to admit as a dude, that's okay. That that was a that was a pretty safe way to handle that particular issue or a non-issue, I guess, as uh, Sundra is trying to turn it into, you know. Friends were turning into a compla- into complacent cattle. Have we forgotten the injustices that brought us here? Is trumpeting one Tyrone in a meeting of fellow insurrectionists, as we turn out here. He is upset because Nexus hasn't done what he feels needs to be done to right his personal wrongs. And he knows that there are other people that feel the same way. Now, this is a, a place that accepts refugees. That is what Nexus has chosen to do. He has never told them to tell me your wrongs and I will right them. You know, basically he has said, I know you have been wronged. Come here and heal. So two very different things. But Tyrone is intent on the fact that killing the people that wronged him is what he needs to heal. And by golly, he's going to get it one way or another. He tells these fellow insurrectionists that there are weapons all over the place here. All we need to do is gather the weapons, get off planet with them, and we can go right our own wrong. Never have to get Nexus involved. Well, Nexus uh, awakes after a a night of fun with Sundra. Uh, Maybe he was able to finish. Maybe he wasn't. I can't really tell here. But he wakes up in a start. Yeah, I'm sorry. That was kind of uncalled for. Have you ever thought about using your power to create something, she says, instead of, well, you know, and he's He's just kind of looks at her and holds out his hand and poof, he makes a flower. That's all we see of that. We don't know. Does the flower hold up? Is it just energy? Is it matter? We don't know. Now, for the first time, we see that his abilities allow him to manipulate matter if this is the case. Further solidified here shortly by some other things he does in this story. So he cannot just manipulate energy as we have seen, I believe, up until now, he also can manipulate matter. Being able to manipulate both energy and matter has to make him amongst the most powerful creations ever in comic book. And, you know, make your arguments against that. Um, Those are the building blocks of reality. And if you can control those, you can control reality. So, I mean, you know, Okay, now, physically, you know, he has shown that he is capable of uh, being injured, uh, feeling pain, you know, all these other things. So perhaps those are weaknesses that he has. But as far as his power scale, I believe at this point now, it cannot be measured. It is up to him to determine how powerful he is. Oh, there's a thought. But anyways. So now Dave approaches Tyrone about having access to other areas of the moon island to uh, collect these weapons he wants to collect. Well, Dave tells him, um, okay, yeah, we'll have to check with Nexus about that. But while you're here, you know, I I had an interesting thought. Uh, We have a spy. And uh, Tyrone is like, what, a spy? What what are you you talking about? Dave says, well, for Suda LeBurk to learn about Nexus's dream, it had to come from someone here. I ran a computer scan on all our inhabitants, but only... But our records are meager. Nexus abhors intelligence gathering, and that's in quote. I guess because of his uh, penchant to be anti-Soviet state at this point, anti-communist, I I guess. Uh, Kind of thinking off the cuff here. That didn't occur to me when I read it, but I I wonder if that's why. That's his bucking against those things that his dad was for, seeing what they enabled his dad to do. Um, That would be plenty of ammunition to be absolutely counter to what he saw in his dad. Probably even made it that much easier uh, to kill his dad, which is still 
pretty messed up for an origin, but okay. Dave goes on, I believe the spy is still active, nor have we seen the last of Suda LeBurk. Well, there's a little bit of foreshadowing for you. We go on here, the forest in the forest, which lies deep beneath Ilum's lifeless surface. So it's some kind of idyllic forest swimming pond pool place here. Sorry for the alliteration. Um, Horatio suffers an attack while he's swimming. She uh, resuscitates him on the beach and then finishes carrying him, perhaps with some help from the aliens, perhaps not. They just see. Uh, but she puts him in his uh, back to tank here. Afterwards, she is speaking to someone. Um, I don't recognize this other female. Talking about solar sailing and having to learn and doing it next week. And while she's talking, Horatio walks by her. Oh, her name is Jill. Horatio walks by her and Sundra says, Horatio, where are you going? And he just walks up to her and gives her a kiss. And he says, up on the roof, you've given me an idea. And she says, an idea? What kind of idea is he's dragging her along? What's on the roof? Nothing. And he's about to open a door to the outside from a... a portal here at the top of the of the moon. She says, don't open that door. Stop. We'll die in the vacuum. He says, take my hand. Relax. I'll keep you warm. And he surrounds her and him in energy bubbles um, that allows him to breathe and talk and feel warm. He says, uh, I extended my energy envelope to enclosure. Look at it. Utter desolation. No sign for hundreds of parsecs. No sign of life for hundreds of parsecs in any direction, but beautiful in its own. Yes, a greater beauty than I can create. Nonetheless, I'm going to build something for you. At least I'm going to try. And now he sits here in the cross-legged position, levitating himself with his hands against his head on either side, on the appropriate side, not crossed over. And Sundra is thinking, what have I started? And beneath him, it looks, but um, in front of him really is how it turns out. I'm not sure how that switches. I guess just the point of view. It starts out in front of him. We just can't tell by the angle here of the panel drawing. But he erects from nothingness this great pointy, speary edifice that is nicely... Um, decorated. There are cool-looking plants floating. Um, three plants on either side. One, two, three. One, two, three. Although that one over there has four. So I thought there was going to be some significance about three. Eh, perhaps another Christian slash religious motif, but perhaps not. I don't know. We, we see four angles of this edifice, and three of the four angles have three plants floating in the air decorating those sides. So there are three three. I, I don't know. I don't know. So he's erected this, and, and she is excited by it, and he says, wait, there's more. And then a beam of energy comes from uh, in the air behind them and just absolutely obliterates this. And she looks, and he doesn't seem surprised. He, he might have been surprised by the destruction, but using his powers, he knows who it is before he turns around. He says who, but off uh, in the background here, we see a big ship, but in front of us in body armor is none other than Sutra LeBurk. He says, hello, four flusher. Remember our deal? You stiffed me. Now I'm here to collect. And that's the end of chapter. Chapter three starts and they're talking. Talky, 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 talky. Suda is telling uh, Nexus why he's upset and what he wants. Ultimately, they agree to a showdown at high noon on Main Street, essentially, is what it is. So he, uh, Horatio goes uh, downstairs into the moon and starts making preparations with his people, telling him to launch recon ship and be standing by in sphere formation, undetected if possible. So I guess he's going to add that attack or use that attack on LeBurk's ship. Uh, I'm not sure, but he, he sets everything up in case there is an attack inside while he is distracted outside. 
tells everybody they take defensive positions and all that. 20 minutes later, he once again walks this gauntlet. Now, some things occurred to me uh, w w this time when I looked at this panel, given some of the other things that I have seen. These people, again, there are no sound balloons indicated by the artist, Mr. Rude, but Horatio is walking down the middle of them. And I'm wondering, are they showing or giving him their faith for a successful completion of this mission? Are they showing him adoration? Are they worshiping him as he walks by as their savior? Any or all of these are possible? More Christian slash religious illusions, at least in my mind? I uh, could possibly be reading into this too much. Someone out there that is familiar with Nexus, explain to me what is going on here, where he walks down this gauntlet. These people are saluting. Now, some of these people have two raised fists. It has been primarily one. Some of these people have two. As he's walking through, they are they are something, and the, the silence is what is really throwing. But he gets ready, and um, Sutra gives him the coordinates of the showdown where they're going to face off. It's out away from things somewhere, trying to get Nexus away from the, the base, the center of his operation. So LeBurk thing. And now it's time to go to work, he says. Pray for me. And she says, uh, Sundra says, to what God? And he says, kiss me then. And he kisses her and jets off, period. Um, Nexus tells him you've mutilated and enslaved 100,000 sentients to drive your ESPN fusion transfer machine. So he has done, Horatio, he has done some kind of psychic work, either on LeBurk or on scanning the ship. LeBurk is powered. He thinks powered to the same level as Nexus. LeBurk's power comes from 100,000 people who have had their heads severed. The heads are kept alive and hooked together like batteries a la Matrix. Okay, a la Christmas lights is the example they used. But of course, nowadays, I would think human battery, Matrix. That's what comes to mind. But that's what he is using to power everything. His ship, his um, body armor, his energy manipulation abilities. All of this. And it is based on, see if I can find it. He references, or here it is, Clausius, the slave trader. He discovered that process, severing the heads, keeping them alive, hooking the heads together like one giant set of batteries in in uh, series, I guess, or I, or in parallel to each other. I don't know. If you remove one, I don't know what happens to the other. I think that's kind of the determinant of whether the circuit is in series or parallel. But either way, um, like the Matrix, okay? He is he is siphoning energy off the living heads of 100,000 people. Um, Nexus, they, they have their showdown, you know, 10 and 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, turn around and fire. Only they're firing at each other from parsecs distance in space, right? Well, they both fire one time. Um, LeBurk misses, as far as we can tell. Nexus fires a second time. We don't know. But one of the two just obliterates LeBurk. When Nexus finds him, he's just a floating skeleton. He trashes uh, his ship. He apparently kills all of the people who are working with LeBurk to keep the ship running. And then he tells his uh, main tech person, Fuerzo, who I believe he's mentioned in every issue. I just haven't. Send to transport medics and supplies. Prepare the hospital for surgery and make space for... A hundred thousand new arrivals, heads only, on life support. And see that all non-essential personnel are cleared from the docking facility. This won't be pretty. So, uh, pulling in the heads, but also the fact that one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, he just went through and trashed six people. So, 
That'll be ugly. Our final segment here, yeah, is at Earth's capital, the co- the cohesive web. And we're told that the centurions have confirmed our findings, Mr. President. Five stars have simultaneously collapsed in far sector HB99.599. They didn't even go Nova. They just blinked out. We know of only one anomaly which could account for such a disaster, the costumed vigilante known as Nex. So now the EarthGov, borrow a... Legion word, I think, maybe. Uh, Legion of Superheroes, EarthGov, uh, has decided Mrs. Imada, Ambassador Imada, is chosen to lead a delegation. You must reason with him if we can, and if we can't, well, there are alternatives, say the Earth President. To be continued, and we now know that this is going to be continued in a slightly different format, bi-monthly, 32-page, full-color Nexus line. We do have a second story. It's the Tales of Dave, and Dave is walking around Ilum, sweeping for stray radio particle ESP or gravity beam transition, and he is talking to... Mesro. Now, Mesro's the little dude that Nexus came back with from the Lifer Mirrored mission that was writing graffiti on a ship that he took because he was going to be killed by firing squad, which I still don't understand. Uh, so this is, I, I like how they're rolling these little things like this together to make this um, this world more cohesive. But he wants to know what Dave is doing and Dave wants him to be in school. So they compromise. Dave tells him a story. He said a young lad of Thune had embarked on his ritual crossings of the Great Desert. Then, on the northern horizon, the Traveler's Nightmare, a mirror monster. And the mirror monster is a bipedal creature, approximately this uh, Thunian's same size with very little features that mimics and mirrors everything it does. Dave tells us it's almost impossible to get by one of these bewildering creatures. The mirror monster, a non-sentient, is a wild form of reflex telepathy who automatically reads and counters the traveler's every move. A non-sentient, mild form of reflex telepathy. That just sounds freaking awesome. How creative is that? There was no communicating with the mute, uncomprehending creature. It was as if an imaginary line had been drawn between them. And in this panel, we see the Thunian running with the mirror monster running right next to him, separated by the same amount every time. Just like you see these things, usually you see videos of like a cat messing with itself in a mirror or some comedian walking by a mirror doing some sort of weird physical movement that in mimicked in the mirror. Yeah, all these kind of weird things. But that's uh, what's going on here. Uh, They had caused the mirror monster many a traveler to turn back or to die of thirst or exhaustion. And he tries hitting it and it hits him back the exact same way, the exact same amount, everything. This lad began to fear a similar fate. He cried out in frustration, get out of the way, you stupid. And he cussed. The mirror monster seemed momentarily taken aback. It gave the lad an idea. Sound! And he yelled at the mirror monster. It didn't yell back. No good. The creature recovered too quickly. The lad quickly unpacked his belongings and found what he needed. A funnel from his stove, part of a pen. From these, he fashioned a makeshift bugle. He blew the bugle in the mirror monster's face and then just walked off. Had this lad lacked a thorough understanding of anthropology and quantum mechanics, he might have been there still. Convincing the boy that those things are important. And then this is the funny part. All of the story for this line, right? You know that's how this went down. Uh, Because Mesro says, gosh, Dave, was the lad you 
Was it Dave, huh? And Dave says, certainly not. It ill becomes one to toot one's own horn. So, I mean, come on. He had to come up with that line. He knew the line first, and he wanted to build a little parable, uh, Mr. Barron, around that. Uh, that had to be what happened. Coming this fall, the Nexus portfolio, full-page ad, then letters columns here. Letters pages uh, did have some interesting things here in it. One here is Mike Barron discussing William Blake and the use of William Blake in issue was that issue one, issue two, issue one, I believe. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, another gentleman, Mr. T.M. Maple, is talking about an ad that he saw in a comic in the comics journal for Nexus, and names attached included Will Eisner, which we saw a letter from, Jim Shooter, Cat Ironwood, Dennis Kitchen, George Freeman, Bob Greenberger, who has a letter in this issue, and T.M. Maple. I don't know who T.M. Maple is. He goes on to talk about it. But this issue, though, has a letter from Mr. Jim Starenko and uh, the aforementioned Mr. Greenberger and Jill Barron, uh, who turns out to be Mike Barron's sister. So those are some highlights of the letters pages. The letters pages are so cool, man. I, I, it's it's such a shame that they charge five and six and seven bucks a book for a handful of color pages on pretty paper, and they don't put letter pages in the books nowadays. Just terrible. Have, have I mentioned that I think that these books overall are better than what is coming out currently. Yeah, so. Um, subscription prices here. You can get a six-issue subscription for Nexus for $9. Uh, the first issue will not be sent before October 1982. That's an old ad because that's when this book came out. Six issues. So this is under the new uh, bi-monthly scheme. So six issues for 9 bucks, And then uh, go to Capital City Dealers for your information there. Capital City, of course, being, well, I don't know, maybe not, of course. Uh, those of you that may not know this, Capital City was a distributor, much like um, Diamond is today. Uh, once upon a time, in, in the way back, there were multiple distributors. There was not one that had a monopoly and could do whatever they wanted to, to the stores to their detriment uh, like there is today. Uh, they were spread out all over the country, and you could order whatever if they carried it from any of them. And Capital City was one of those. Uh, I'd did mention that Capital City was based in Wisconsin, so they're pretty centrally located. Uh, but yeah, they, they had life and have had up until this point as a distributor. And after they stopped producing comics, they continued that life for a short while. Um, they eventually got boarded up, unfortunately. But so yeah, they're a distributor that got into making comics, much like uh, Pacific. Pacific, we will find out when I get there. They're another organization with books that I want to talk about was a distributor and um, started uh, producing comic books. Some comic books that were far-reaching. Um, they initially produced comic books containing The Rocketeer, and they produced the first Gru comic books. So those are a couple long-lasting. Uh, the Rocketeer, not necessarily so much, but his creator. And Gru uh, is Gru. Uh, I think most everybody is familiar with Gru. If you have bought comics anywhere in the last... 35 to 40 years, you've seen Gru, Sergio Aragona. So uh, those were from Pacific. Those are coming up in the not too, too distant future, hopefully. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a short history of comic distributors wanting a part of that publishing money. Uh, Capital found it not necessarily to their liking. Pacific did well when they did. They also, after a relatively short period, three or four years, I think, found that it was not to their liking either. So 
either a publisher or a distributor B, both. Okay, uh, that's all for this episode. Next episode will be Nexus Volume 2, Issue 1. And eh, once again, I didn't write down the cover date for that, so I apologize. Let me see if I can look it up quickly here. And here we go. Tippity-tap, tap, tippity-tap. And Google Foo says that the Grand Comics database indicates May 1983 for that. Uh, this issue that we just talked about came out October 82. So May, June, July, August, September, October. Five from 12 is seven. So seven months later. Took them a little while, even though they knew what they were going to do. I wonder what the holdup was. Maybe we'll hear about that when I read the Indicia info page on that. But either way, May 1983 will be our next step in our capital journey. Nexus Volume 2, issue number one, will be the target. Thanks a lot, guys, for hanging with me, listening to me, perhaps talking back with me about the first volume of Nexus. Till we start the uh, the next volume, carry on, folks. Ciao.